This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. John Fain, welcome to Better Reading. It's an absolute pleasure to join you. Well, I'm a little bit nervous, John, because the mic is, it's kind of the other way around, isn't it? Yeah, I know. I've been, (laughs) I I actually offered to interview myself the other day with somebody. So, uh, you know, 30 years, 30 years behind a microphone. Yeah, yeah. I know I had a terrible reputation, but I don't think I deserved it. I mean... Every now and again, I'd give someone a hard time, but it was usually because they were asking for it. You know, a politician who wouldn't answer a question or some sleazy business person who wouldn't do what they were being asked to do. But on the radio, I was never nasty to people who were just, you know, ordinary listeners and people who were wanting help. Quite the opposite. I, I kind of thought I'd turn it on when it was required. Well, obviously, I don't have your breadth of experience at all. But, you know, when I started recording these podcasts, I think we've been going for three or four years now. Um, and well, that's, that's uh, great success, Cheryl. You should be very proud. Thank you, John. But I interviewed Malcolm Turnbull well, just at the beginning of COVID, I think it was. I think that book was launched around then. And, do you know, I lost so many friends in the park because <laughs> I walked my dog because everybody said I gave him a hard time. And I'm like, what? He's, he's, he can't give Malcolm Turnbull a hard time. You know, Cheryl Arkell can't give Malcolm Turnbull a hard time. But anyway, people were mad at me. No, well, do your worst. Go yeah. on. <laughs> That's right. I won't. I'll go easy. Reduce me oh. to a pulp. <laughs> so John is an award-winning journalist and broadcaster who was host of the morning broadcast for ABC Radio Melbourne for more than 20 years. Prior to that, he practised as a lawyer, which I didn't know, and human rights advocate. He's been nominated for three Walkley Awards and regularly contributes to newspapers with opinion pieces. He has published best-selling travel book and now published a book called Apollo and Thelma about the mighty Apollo, a legendary strongman and circus star. So I'm really, I what I want to know first is I want to go back to the career. I mean, you know, that's three full careers in a lifetime. I want to go back to the beginning and what led you to your first career. Uh, well, the book tells the story. So Apollo and Thelma spans 40 years and it includes the answers to that question. And I, uh, I, I did okay at school and uh, I went to Melbourne High, which is an all boys government school of selective school though in Melbourne. And I got marks good enough to get into law, and much to the surprise of some of my teachers and certainly my parents who thought that I was the laziest year 12 or sixth form matriculant they'd ever known. In fact, my parents encouraged me to leave school before the exams and said, you might stand a chance of getting a job if you leave now before everybody else is joining the job market. <laughs> and I, in fact, did exceptionally well in the exams, whether it was to sort of prove them wrong and get revenge or not, I don't know. But I got marks good enough to get into law and I went and did law and I hated it. I hated studying mm. law the first few years. It meant nothing to me. It was mm. um, distant and irrelevant. And uh, halfway through my law course, though, 
as I explain in the book, I came home from uni one day with my friend Robert, who was a psychology student, and we were confronted with a an auction board, a for sale sign out front of the the half house we rented in suburban Elstonwick. And Robert looked at me and I looked at Robert and he said, well, what does that mean? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, you're a law student. You should know. And it occurred to me that I really should know. But, uh, you know, they didn't teach us stuff like that. They taught us mm. what happened if your, your haystack caught fire from a passing steam train or, you know, that's the sort of <laughs> Useful information. Yeah, so, yeah. But I did know that there were some fellow students who were volunteers of the Tenants Union Legal Service. So I went off there to see them. When I arrived, they said, oh, good, have you come to help? And I went, uh, no, I've come for advice. And they mocked me and said, well, we'll give you advice at the end of the night when we're having pizza and beer, but for now you can help. And here's the clipboard, start taking people's names and phone numbers and addresses and find out what sort of a problem they've got because we're understaffed today. And I just loved it. From that moment on, I'd found my tribe and it, suddenly my course became relevant. Um, I made friends with people who are still my friends now, 40 years on, mm. 45 years on. Oh my God, I'm old. And uh, it just turned in that moment, you know, that for sale sign, the auction sign did me an enormous favour. It, it, it changed my appreciation of all the arcane and what I thought were irrelevant rules that we were being made to learn had a real world application when you were trying to help someone who was facing eviction or had a massive bill being sent to them that they didn't think was fair for repairs that, you know, damage that already existed before they moved in and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, I, I, I never looked back from that moment on. And I, mm. I loved my law course once it became relevant to me. And thankfully, and I'm a bit involved now, I'm a I'm a vice chancellor's fellow at the University of Melbourne at the law school. And I also have a bit to do with some others. And the courses have improved dramatically since those days, but it really, it, it was pretty, pretty grim then. I shared a lecture theatre with people like, I mean, Peter Costello and I were in tax wow. together and Michael Kroger and um, John Thwaites, former Deputy Premier of Victoria. And, you know, Pat Dodson was a student in the Monash Law School for a while before he decided it was a waste of his time and he was quite right too. <laughs> I've got a, a little theory about law and I'll get into trouble for this because a lot of my friends are lawyers and barristers, but I do have just in my experience with getting um, advice is a lot of the lawyers or the solicitors that I've dealt with over the years that work for law firms, they're fence sitters. They don't really give you advice. They, okay. they kind of tell you what happens if you do this and what happens if you do that, but that's about it. Well, they're not right. telling you what to do. Their job is to give you options and you have to be, like informed consent with the doctor, you have to be the one who makes the decision mm. about which course you'll adopt. And that's quite right. I mean, but they should be able to say quite firmly, you know, this is the best way to go and that one, you can go down there if you want to, but you do so at your peril. No, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know the details of what you're talking about. No, but lots yeah, of lawyers. Yeah. I mean, the worst sort of lawyer is the one who's so dogmatic and says, I'll take over and run this for you. And then if you're not happy, you feel, well, not only have I lost the case, but I've also had no say. Well, and also I'm now totally broke. <laughs> and you could well be totally broke. Because they don't yeah. come, their advice doesn't come cheaply. Okay, so how did you transition from that to a radio presenter? Talk to us about that. Well, I, I, I finished my law course and loved it and was very, got sort of involved in a lot of legal aid things as a student even. And then I was continuing to volunteer when I was a, a baby lawyer and I tell the story of how I was working in the day in the 26th floor of a high-rise office building in Collins Street, Melbourne, for a big commercial law firm and, you know, stitching up people and doing helicopter leases for oil wells in Bass Strait and documentation for that and building disputes and whatever else came along. 
and I was for four years a commercial litigation lawyer, but my heart was at the legal service and I got involved mm. with Fitzroy Legal Service as well as the Tenants Union. And when a job came up, I went for it and went and moved to Fitzroy. And for three years, I was the lawyer at Fitzroy Legal Service and started to do a bit of media when I was there because part and parcel of doing the, the activism about law reform was to be in the media. And I really enjoyed it. And there were people in the media who told me I was good at it. And Radio National has a, a program called The Law Report. So there's The Health Report, The Law Report. And Tom Malombi had started that and he was leaving. He decided to go to the bar. When I left Fitzroy, he said, what are you going to do next? You could give me a hand and be my Melbourne stringer. Now, I didn't even know what a stringer was, but someone taught me how to use a microphone and how to cut tape and edit. And I was sent off to do little jobs for Tom. And then he had a job. He needed someone for a week to go to a conference with him in Perth. And I went to the Australian Legal Convention with an ABC tape recorder and a microphone. And I walked into this huge convention centre and saw the Attorney General of Australia across the other side of the hall. And he was chatting to a few people and I'd been writing to him from Fitzroy Legal Service sort of saying, you know, why won't you give more money to legal aid and we've got problems with, you know, funding for legal centres and what about this law reform priority? And you tended to get a brush off or no answer at all. So I bowled over to him with the ABC microphone in my hand with the logo on it and asked him all the same questions and he gave me answers. And I thought, jeez, mm. this is pretty mm. good, this ABC yeah. microphone thing. I can actually bowl up to the Attorney General and get an instant response to something that otherwise was getting the brush off. This is kind of fun. Mm. So Tom told me at dinner that he was leaving to go to the bar and I applied for the job and I got it and I joined the ABC and I did the law report for four years and then I got switched over to talk radio and mm. off it went from there. And the rest is history. What do you think is happening to the ABC? What do you mean? Well, in terms of... Um, you know, I feel as though that every time a government gets in, they feel that the ABC isn't on their side or the ABC isn't neutral or the ABC has too many people working for it. It is always a target. Yeah, that's right. And so if it's doing its job properly, it should be. I was the most complained about ABC radio mm. presenter for a couple mm. of years and I wore that as a, as a medal of pride. I was proud of it. In fact, my, my attitude to it was, well, what the hell's going on with the rest of them? Why aren't they being complained about? Mm. If you're doing your job properly, then people do complain. Mm. Not a, you know, Only one or two complaints. In all my 30 years, only one or two complaints were found to be sustained and one of them I still get very angry about because it was completely and utterly wrong, but that's another story for another day. But the ABC should be getting up people's noses if it's doing its job properly, whoever the government of the day is. And if the polls are correct and we're going to see a change of government at the election that's coming in just a few days as we're recording this, then the ABC will be applying as much scrutiny to a Labor government or a, a government supported by a crossbench uh, as it does to any other. If anything, I think that the big issue and the risk at the moment is that there are people in this current Morrison government, as we record, they're still in the last few days of an election campaign, uh, who have bombarded and barraged the ABC with complaints in order to try and in some way intimidate them. And I was on the receiving end of some of that too. And it takes enormous fortitude to stand mm. up against that level mm. of... of uh that weight, well, you can call it as you will, but that weight of complaints. And I was in meetings with managers who said, oh, we just don't need another complaint at the moment. Can you just apologise because we've just got, we've got too many points of difference at the moment. We don't need more. And I'd say, but no, I'm not apologising for, for no reason. I'm not prepared to. And that's the tactic. You know, they just bully people. They keep bullying them, bullying them until they, you know, they try and wear them out. That's well, what Parliament they do. on both sides, I hate to break the news to you, Cheryl, but there are bullies on both sides. Oh, sure, sure, sure. 
It's yeah, not yeah. something that is the exclusive province of the coalition, although it does have some remarkably aggressive characters in its ranks mm-hmm. as we are on the dying few days of an election campaign. Mm-mm. Okay, so tell me about Apollo and Thelma. Well, the book starts with I only met Thelma Hawkes after she died. Mm-hmm. Her brother, the mighty Apollo, introduced us, and in order to tell you their story, I have to tell you some of mine. So Thelma Hawkes was the solo publican of one of Australia's most remote pubs in the Northern Territory at a place called Top Springs, two and a half hours west of Catherine, towards the West Australian border. And she'd been there for years and years and years, and she was a, an extraordinary character with a formidable reputation and a nickname that may or may not be suitable for your podcast. I don't know. You, you guide me. Oh, no, that's think, fine. You can say whatever okay? you like. Well, yeah. Nickname was Old Leather Tits. Right. And she ruled this pub, which was in the middle of nowhere, with an iron fist. And she died very suddenly in 1981 and left her estate to her brother and his three teenage sons, the bulk of it to three nephews. And they were all underage. So I was approached within the law firm. I was given conduct of the the estate of T.C. Hawks. And my client was Paul Alexander McPherson Anderson, who that's his his real name. He was known universally as the mighty Apollo, who was the world's strongest man, Australia's iron-jawed king of strength and so on. And he was a, a circus strong man who became a gymnast, a, 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 sorry, a gym, a gym owner and instructor, a fitness instructor. He and his then wife, Rhonda, were the first to offer self-defence classes for women. Uh, He held the world record for the number of cars driving over his prone body while he lay on a bed of nails. He survived having an elephant stand on him and was particularly famous for a a phenomenal achievement, which was rammed down the street with a toggle in his teeth. So using only his teeth, he would pull a tram fully laden with passengers down the street. And he did this over and over again, often for charity and certainly for uh, fame and glory. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And for torture, maybe. Well, yes, it was, <laughs> he suffered for his art. But mm. So he was my client about the estate. And the estate was particularly weird and it took years to resolve and required me fairly early on to go up to Darwin. 
and meet with the various people. There was a, a, a business partner who, well, he claimed he was a business partner. We said he was just an employee. And he claimed, in fact, when Thelma died, he claimed the pub was therefore his. And we had to deal with that. And we had to deal with the tax office because she'd been not filing tax returns for years. And we had to deal with the Department of Social Security because she'd been getting a pension for years, even though she wasn't old enough and was working full-time running a successful and very lucrative business. There are all sorts of claims against the estate and debts and twists and turns, and it took years to resolve. And I got to know Apollo and I thought, wow, what a character. She was clearly a character, although she was dead before I got involved, and he was an incredible character. And I knew even back then that one day this was a story begging to be told. And the story of the book spans 40 years, Cheryl, and the twists and turns and where it took me and how it kept popping up in my life and how it led me to Frank Hardy. So I met Frank Hardy through a circuitous route, which started with an interview I did with a retired judge called Sir John Stark. He had appeared for Hardy in the criminal defamation trial over the publication of Power That Glory, which is a story that's told in the book. And Hardy had, after the after the Power That Glory trial, where he was found not uh, liable for criminal defamation, which is an, a very rarely used legal sanction, which in this case was used by the Wren family against Hardy because he was penniless. There was no point suing him for defamation damages because he had no money to pay. So instead they tried to have him put in prison and they tried to have his book banned and they failed. But afterwards Hardy went bush and he he went off to, he heard about the Garingi walk-off at Wave Hill and he was the communist activist shit stirrer who went bush, a writer who couldn't write to help an Aboriginal community with a story they couldn't tell. But he had the connections back to the East Coast through his communist activism and through churches and trade unionists. He had connections back to the Aborigines Advancement League and to student activists of Abscol. Remember, the, this was mm-hmm. the time of, of the, uh, the Freedom Rides. Charlie Perkins and Jim mm-hmm. Spiegelman, the former Chief Justice of New South Wales, when as a student activist, they, they took buses out to Western New South Wales and Western Queensland to try and deal with the colour bands that were still in place. So Hardy tapped into those networks and one of the people who he motivated was Gough Whitlam. I was working with Hardy on a few things when he died and I found myself MC at Hardy's funeral and a story that I explain in the book how that improbable thing came about. And we broadcast Hardy's memorial service from Collingwood Town Hall with a 1,000 people in the hall and hundreds of thousands listening on the ABC. We broadcast that to the nation. And Gough Whitlam gave one of the eulogies and in tears he said, it was Hardy who opened my eyes to Indigenous disadvantage, which led to the push for things like land rights. And I was there on stage with Goff and Goff in tears turned and I went to help him down the stairs and he, he wept on my shoulder and it took me years oh. before I could bring myself to dry clean that suit. But, <laughs> and it struck me with a lightning bolt that the Garingi walk-off was just at the same place. It was down the road from Thelma Hawke's pub. Yeah, wow. Thelma and Frank Hardy probably crossed paths and yet again it popped up in my life and it just kept happening over and over again. And I, as I went up to the Territory for the ABC from time to time, I would take my tape recorder and grab anyone I could find who had a story to tell about Thelma Hawkes, about Top Springs and all the old-timers I could find. And I actually tracked down her ex-husband, a remarkable man called Sid Hawkes, who quite frankly could be a book of his own, and interviewed him at length and a whole lot of other people who knew Thelma really well. And I started to think this is going to be a great yarn one day. I'm just going to have to get down to telling it. And I'm glad I have. The Garingi walk-off is always known as having been a struggle about dignity, 
labour rights and land rights. But in fact, there's one more thing that they mention themselves in their petition. And this becomes a key part of a whole chapter of the book. They say, we do this for our dignity, for our land and for our, work, our rights, but we also do it, and it's incredible, to protect our women. And when I read the petition and went back to the original documents, that leapt off the page at me and it leads to a heartbreaking series of stories, accounts, first-hand accounts and survivor reminiscences of colonial rape, quite frankly, and the attitude of buffalo hunters, dingo trappers, mineral explorers and early settlers, the attitude that Aboriginal girls and women were there for the taking. And every massacre I looked at started out with rape. And then after rape, the Aboriginal men would spear someone for, for the rape and then there would be a, a, a hunting party to go out to avenge the spearing and that would lead to a massacre over and over and over again. It's not pretty, but it's part of our history. And if we believe in truth-telling and if we believe in treaty and if we believe in remedying the, the wrongs of the past, we simply can't look away. And I was not prepared to look away and that's part mm. of this book. Mm-hmm. You've got to talk about it. Okay, I want to go back. You've got your career going on. You've got a full-time job and you're starting to think about writing. So I want to talk about how that comes about. So you're collecting information, you're doing research, you're interviewing. That's one thing, but writing a book is another, isn't it? So tell me about how that came together. When I left the ABC in November 2019, I had a lot of things lined up to do. I was doing some conference work and I was also heading off to two visits to Papua New Guinea to do some really interesting work up there and all sorts of busy things were happening. And I was just about to start a part-time job at Melbourne Uni Mm -hmm. as a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow and then COVID hit. Mm. And everything was cancelled. And Cheryl, I went from having an incredibly busy working life Mm. to a diary that had nothing in it for the rest of my life. Yeah, wow. Okay. Mm. Nothing. Mm. And I got quite miserable. I don't mind sharing Mm. this. No. I I started to feel, well, I'm I'm cooked here. What have I I done? I retreated to the, yeah, I've, I've made a terrible mistake. I retreated to my shed where I tinker with odd cars and I would just bury myself in doing something mechanical. Mm-hmm. And after about a week or so, I gave myself a kick up the backside and said, pull your finger out. There's a whole lot of people much worse off than we are and you've got options and choices, which is a great luxury and a privilege. And I said, well, I've always said I'm going to do Thelma and Apollo. I've got to either do it now or stop pretending because this is the perfect time. So I climbed mm. up on a ladder to the top of the bookshelf where I had a box of all the stuff I'd been tucking away, pulled it down, started listening back to tapes I made in 2000, oh, sorry, 1988. Wow. And I started yeah. recording interviews as far back as then when I joined the ABC. Mm. And I started working out, well, I've got some of what I need, but there's a whole lot of gaps. And I decided, okay, I'm going to do this properly. So I got a writer's room at the Abbotsford Convent down in the Riverbank. Yeah, Melbourne. I know where that is, yeah. And I sat there with a computer for months and months and months doing research and listening back to interviews and doing new interviews and tracking people down. And I couldn't go to Darwin because I wanted to go into the archives up there, but I had to get someone to do that for me by, mm-hmm. by, because of COVID. But I, I came up with a draft for a book and then I went and saw some publishers and they all said, oh, yeah, this sounds good. And I chose the one that I thought got the kind of the, the zeitgeist of it the most. And they bashed me up and said, this is rubbish and start again. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and off it went. Welcome we went to the editorial publishers. process. Yeah. 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 Well, publishers exist to save authors from themselves. And mm-hmm. we went through four drafts. And in the end, we came up with something that 
they've put out into the marketplace and I hope people enjoy it as much as I've enjoyed writing it. Well, you know, I think people are enjoying it. I think there's, a, a you know, it's some great reviews out yeah. there. I want to go back to the writing process because it is, in a way, it's kind of part nonfiction, part memoir, but you, you're dealing with people that are still alive. You know, you mm-hmm. that I think is difficult, you know, um, when you're writing about the dead, at least they can't come up and say, well, yeah, actually that wasn't quite right or that was. So talk to me about that and how then when the book was finished, did you show it to the people that you were talking about? The first contact I made was with the three now adult sons yeah. who were my teenage clients. And Paul, Mark and Bruce Anderson are the three sons of the mighty Apollo and his, his their, their mother, Rhonda. And their story is an extraordinary part of this book. I mean, the eldest mm-hmm. son, Paul, he will not say his mother's name. She's the incubator. And their story of how she ran away with one of the martial arts instructors from their father's gym and disappeared from their lives when they were very young boys, five, seven, and nine, she yeah, wow. vanished overnight. She dropped them at school and said, be good to each other and look after your father, and then just wasn't seen. Mm-hmm. And the police took them home from school and their father had a nervous breakdown and they were put in institutional care. So the first thing I did was speak to the three of them and secured their cooperation and agreement. But it has to be said, and this causes me great distress, that even though they worked on the book with me and I showed 75% of the final draft to the eldest brother, Paul, and went through it with him sometimes line by line to make sure he was happy with the way his father and his aunt were described and the way their story was told. They are now saying they're not happy with the description of their dad or their aunt. For instance, their, their aunt, Thelma, so it's Apollo and Thelma, their aunt, okay. Thelma, is, you know, she, by all accounts of everyone I interviewed, she was a pretty rugged, redneck, even racist publican not unusual for the times, but by today's standards, she was shocking. Mm. And I describe her quoting people at length. And, you know, I've got these people on tapes, you know, I haven't Mm. made this stuff up, but they're not happy that she's described that way. And they're not happy with some of the descriptions of their father who I describe. And I met him often enough to, you know, have fond memories. He was an amazing man, an enigmatic, a charismatic, complex character. But even though he was an extraordinary performer. He was also, in many other ways, he was, you know, quite neglectful of his parental duties. He left his boys in care all those years and he said, no, I couldn't possibly look after the man pursue my career. But there was no thought that he might have to compromise and reduce his performances in order to look after his boys. And his boys were being shockingly brutalised in institutional care. So when you look back, you go, well, that wasn't so flash, was it? And the boys, boys, they're men, they say so themselves. But in the end, when the book came out, they went, how dare you describe our father as vain? How dare you say he wasn't a good parent? We don't like to talk. I'm quoting you. You did this interview Mm. with me where you said he wasn't great as a parent. But anyway, it causes me great distress that they don't Mm. embrace the book. Mm. I'd invited Paul to launch the book, and two days before the launch he told me, no, I'm not Mm. going to. And Mm. that, that upsets me a lot. But, hey, for me it's a book. For them it's their lives. I totally understand that. Mm. And also, you know, people don't like to speak ill of the dead. You can have the worst people. You know, look at eulogies, for instance. You know, they're often not a reflection of the person's life. Very often, you know, I mean, people don't go up there and say, you know, my father was awful, but that just doesn't happen, does it? No, you tend to, you don't speak of the dead. And I haven't spoken, well, I don't think I've spoken ill of the dead Apollo. I have quoted people who spoke Mm. um, 
in uncomplimentary terms of Thelma, but she died in 1981 for a start. Mm. And I believe, and I hope your listeners, in, when they read the book, which I'm sure every single one of them will do, I hope that they come away with a, an appreciation of what an extraordinary man Paul Anderson was, or the mighty Apollo, and how it was that he could do things that, quite frankly, were superhuman. Mm. And I don't know how he could do them. He had a threshold for pain that is quite inexplicable. Mm. And all of that, I think, is is well explained and well explored and reflects very generously upon him. But unfortunately, his sons don't agree. Mm. John, we're out of time. But I want to say, what I'm going to say about the book for all our listeners is it's, it's, so, um, it's such a pleasure to read because it's part memoir and part biography and you've got a really lovely storytelling style. It's an unusual book, but it's oh, yes, very... It's a, it's a bit of a genre bender, I'm told, because it doesn't fit neatly into a category. And, you know, there's a few other things. I've told some stories about my time at the ABC and including about Jeff Kennett and John Howard and a few other things and told some stories about legal aid days and stories about, you know, when I was practising law. And, I mean, it sort of wanders around, but then, you know, life wanders around. So, you know, who said books should fit neatly into one category or another? It's just how it evolved and it tells the story over 40 years. And and, and that's why that's, it's so interesting. Yeah, And there's, yeah. A, there's a consistent thread through it all. And I make some personal disclosures, which I've always been a very private person, but I kind of, I realise that, People want a bit more of me if they, whether they've known me through the radio or whatever else, then, you know, it, it, you've got to be honest, you've got to be authentic and you've got to give a bit of yourself if you want people to come along on the journey with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you are that and it is. It is honest and it is authentic. John Fain, thank you so much for your time today. Cheryl, it's been a pleasure. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.